David Siegel here, your favorite podcast host. Before we get into today's episode, I have something important to share. Check out my new book, Decide and Conquer, to really get to know my story at Meetup. You know, the hardest thing about community leadership is making tough decisions when the stakes are high. And I'll tell you, they were never higher than when Meetup was owned and sold by WeWork. In my new book, Decide and Conquer, I'll walk you through a counterintuitive framework for decision-making, and the epic journey of Meetup's surprising survival. Good leaders deliberate, great leaders decide. Now decide and conquer by pre-ordering my book today by going to decideandconquerbook.com or anywhere books are sold. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Keep Connected. I'm David Siegel. In this episode, we're talking to Smiley Peswalski. Smiley is a motivational speaker, an author, and a meetup champion. We're talking to someone who is smiley in the inside and the outside. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Smiley Puswalski, I am so glad that you're here and keep connected. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Reading about your background, I think the biggest risk today is going to be we're going to run out of time very quickly. Let me just tell everyone, all of our listeners, about Smiley Poswalski. Smiley, you are like the millennial whisperer. I, I really mean, I don't know if anyone's called you that, but that's like going to be your new thing. Let me tell our listeners why. He's the author of an upcoming book called Friendship in the Age of Loneliness, which is not his first, not his second, but his third book. I just watched his TED Talk on the quarter life crisis which had, oh, 1.5 million people actually watched that TED Talk. So, wow. You're a 13-year camp counselor at Camp Grounded, and you're the founder of Women BIPOC Speaker Initiative, and you are also a very smiley guy, clearly. I thought I was a smiley guy. You're a smilier guy. <laughs> we and, need more uh, smiley guys and, and smiley do. women and smiley humans in this world. Well said. Okay, so let's talk about smiley then. How did you get the nickname smiley? That's the first thing I want to hear. Actually, a lot of my close friends don't even know my real name is Adam. I mean, they know it, but they never use it. And some people that know me well don't even know, know that my name is Adam. But I actually got that nickname uh, nearly 20 years ago. So it started uh, freshman year of high school. I wanted to play a sport. And I went to a very big public high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Cambridge and Latin School uh, with over 2,000 kids. And I obviously is pretty short, scrawny kid. I wasn't going to play football. <laughs> I would have gotten trampled. Our soccer team was one of the best teams in the state. I wasn't going to make the soccer team. So pretty much the only sport left was cross country, which for those of you that don't know, is just running. You just go run for three miles or five miles, 10 miles, even 15 miles on Sundays. So, you know, we just go running. And I grew up in, in Cambridge, Boston area. So it's pretty cold in the fall and winter and rainy and snowy sometimes. So we're running hill workouts and I'm kind of just smiling up the hill, you know, running and mind my own business. Oh, this is great. My coach is this Boston guy, you know, he goes, what the hell are you doing smiling, kid? Stop <laughs> smiling. Stop puking. Stop puking, kid. Why are you smiling? So my coach is... Uh, who were two brothers, Jesse and Scott Cody, nicknamed me Smiley. The team started calling me Smiley. That transferred into the rest of high school. And there were a couple kids that uh, from my high school that ended up going to the same college as me, Wesleyan University. And the name stuck. 
I mean, you have an amazingly natural perma smile kind of, (laughs) is it hard sometimes? Like if you have to like be serious, have like a serious conversation, your face is kind of in a natural smile. That's actually not easy sometimes, right? It's not easy, especially because, you know, even positive, happy people, um, you know, go through hard times. And sometimes, you know, I show up and I'm having a rough day or I'm going through something or I'm grieving or something's going on. And people are like, why smiley? You're supposed to be smiling. And it's it's a little annoying. And, you know, I think people that know you well start to, you know, know that you have multitudes and aren't always just a peppy mascot. But it becomes a challenge. But I think that overall, you know, there's science that actually proves that the more that you smile, you help other people smile. People think it's just for yawning that you might transfer a yawn, <laughs> but there's no question that smiling. In fact, one of my favorite books out there that I have all my students read, I teach it at Columbia as well, is um, is uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he talks all about the importance of smiling. And they always right. tell salespeople that when you're on a sales call, have a mirror in front of you and try to be smiling during your smile is are contagious. And I actually believe that as weird as this sounds, I have been more successful in business and life because of smiling, because of the v- positive vibe and energy that comes from it. So I, clearly you have been very successful in business and in life. And uh, and it's clearly been a positive, though it's, it can be an albatross, it sounds like, as well. Yeah. And there's people I remember, you know, when some public speaking coaches will say, you know, if you kind of forget what your, what you, what your speech is and you're on stage, just get up there and start making eye contact and smiling with people. And people are like, that was great. That was amazing. doesn't really matter what you say because... People remember, oh, yeah, they're really positive, high energy. They smiled a lot. You can't fake that. But if you actually are excited to see people and be there, people are going to remember that. It's going to make them feel good. Okay. So speaking of speaking and and different speaking that you've done, you did a TED Talk on the Quarter Life Breakthrough. And you've also written a book about it. And I really enjoyed it. Um, You had one and a half million people who viewed it, which I mentioned earlier. Tell us a little bit about what were some of the key messages and also just take us inside. Like when it started blowing up or were you surprised? Did you work hard to get to blow? I mean, how did it get to 1.5 million views? Just, I want to hear about that as well. I'll start with the key messages. I was going through my own quarter life crisis at the time. And I think one of the reasons why the talk was successful was, you know, I was still not yet a professional public speaker. So I kind of had that energy of just I'm going for it. I don't know what I don't know. And I'm just putting myself out there and getting on stage and going to share my story. So the authenticity really comes through. You know, nowadays I give talks at big companies and conferences and it's the same, but you're kind of more polished. I was less polished. I I had notes with me because I was worried I was going to get on there and and blank and forget my, my entire speech. But a lot of people have reached out to me and said, whoa, you know, it just felt like I was having a conversation with you that you were just in my living room, that we were just talking and people resonated with that. I was just going through it. Here are the lessons I learned on my journey. And, you know, people people remember that. I mean, a few of them were, I think the biggest ones were, you know, stop comparing yourself to others. Millennials, Gen Zers, folks that spend a lot of time on social media. Frankly, we all spend a lot of time on social media right now. But anyone kind of trying to build a career in the current environment with our reliance on technology will resonate with the fact that it's really hard to figure out what you want without the influence of what all your other friends are doing. I saw when the things you said, you said, oh, my friend just opened up a food truck. I should open up a food truck. My friend just got married. I should get married. And it's just like, that's not right. And they're cool things. Friend going to business school. I should go to business school. Friend, you know, social entrepreneur. I should become a social entrepreneur. These are 
great things and cool options. Friends starting a nonprofit. Yes, we need more nonprofits. That's great. But it was much more of realizing, oh, this isn't about everyone else. This is about figuring out why I'm here and what I'm looking for and what I'm really good at and how can I align my unique gifts with the impact I'm trying to have. Another key one that I always bring up is surround yourself with believers. So find people that believe in the beauty of your dreams, because I think it's very easy to tell people that you're looking to make a change or that you are going to raise money to start a business or you want to do something different or you want to launch a creative project. And they kind of roll their eyes and say, uh-huh, weren't you talking about that a couple of months ago? You're never going to do it. Everyone's doing a Kickstarter these days. Everyone's starting a meetup group. Everyone's starting a sub stack. Everyone's writing a book, right? Everyone's trying to get a promotion. Right. Blah, blah, the downers. Blah. You're not going to do it. The downers, the haters, the naysayers, and finding the people that truly believe in your dreams and are going to support you and be in your corner and be in your circle that are going to hold you accountable. They say, didn't you say that you were going to write a book? <laughs> didn't you say you were you know, going to take a course and learn uh, UX design. You said you were going to do that. When are you doing that, right? They're going to hold you accountable to it. So that was a big thing in my life. I didn't have as many of those people. And I had gone to this program called Starting Block, which, you know, speaking of communities, a really powerful community, Starting Block Institute for Social Innovation, brings together a lot of uh, professionals and young prof- professionals that are interested in using business for good, interested in in supporting social entrepreneurship and social innovation. And that was my first taste of really believers that were going to stand in your corner and support you on your way and connect you to the right people and take an interest in your work and try to help you um, gain contacts and reach out to folks that could support you. Yeah, the power of positivity in the community that you surround yourself by and the challenges of toxicity or kind of negative emotions and negative people. So how the heck did that turn into 1.5 million? I mean, when it started growing, were you just like, what is happening? Give us the very quick skinny on that. Cause I just, I, I don't talk to many people that, that have that kind of virality happen to their, you know, 53,000 likes. What, what happened? It almost never happened. I remember when they called my name, I think I was in the bathroom. I was getting super nervous. I was still in the bathroom. They were like, you got to come out. I did that at TEDx Mile High, which is in Denver, Colorado at the Denver Opera House, which is this beautiful building. So I felt like I was giving kind of, you know, hosting the Oscars or something. So maybe that was part of it. But I just remember that I think that there it was the right moment. It was an idea, people say an idea whose time has come, right? So there was a lot of people, everyone is looking for meaning and purpose in their work. Quarter life crisis has been going on forever, midlife crisis, like this is not a new topic, new idea. But it was a time when you know, people were starting to talk about this as it related to millennials and careers and the search for meaningful work came out in 2015. It was just the right time. And a lot of people shared it that that knew me. And then people started sharing it that I'd never met before. It kind of got out there. So and it was also at the time when, you know, I think the TEDx talks were having a little bit more momentum, there was less TEDx events than there are now. So that may have helped The, the message really resonated. And you know, if you I always tell people when it comes to writing and speaking and storytelling, say what needs to be said, get what's on your chest, get it out there, right? If if it maybe makes, if it maybe scares you, if maybe intimidates you, that's a sign that it needs to be out there. Even if other people could be uncomfortable or you could be uncomfortable, that's possibly a sign that you should be talking about it. So let's talk about that a little more. You've spoken probably dozens, hundreds of times. What 
advice would you give to people? I mean, people will say that the thing they're most afraid of is public speaking. The thing they're second most afraid of is probably death. And public right. speaking ranks higher in fear than death. So it's a clearly a major issue for people. When it comes to even community and community building, oftentimes community leaders need to be comfortable with public speaking. So in addition to say what needs to be said, smile, as you said, look people in the eye, what other advice do you have for people around um, public speaking? There are several. I mean, I love the Jerry Seinfeld line. He always says that at a funeral, people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, <laughs> right? Um, which just shows you how intimidated people are by public speaking. I mean, I think one of the more, most practical things is to practice. We assume that people that are, oh, they're, they, they're not intimidated by public speaking. Oh, yes, I am. Believe me, I do it as a living. And I still am very nervous. I get the jitters when I get up on stage. But I've done likely that talk 100, 200, 300 times or a version of it. So I know where I'm going. I know what's going to be happening. I know that certain jokes work. I know that people resonate with certain stories. And you so still I'm, get the jitters though. Of course. If I'm in a big room and there's a jumbotron and, you know, people are like, I bet, hope this guy is not, doesn't suck. You know, it's, it's still scary. So definitely practice. I also think, you know, connecting it to, you know, a higher purpose or trying to inspire and create a call to action, right? A lot of times people forget, oh, they're just getting up there and they're like, let me tell you about how great I am. Or let me tell you about my startup or my company. What is the why? right? What is the higher purpose? What is the impact you're trying to have? What will people do if they kind of come on stage with you and follow you and join your movement, join your call to action? That's what gets people fired up. When I speak, one of my priorities is very practical takeaways. And it can't be, it has to be about the listener. What motivation can they have and how can I serve a noble cause? So that's, people just talk about themselves. No one wants to hear about that necessarily. Right. They want to hear about how that could help someone else. Right. The practical piece is great too. I think, you know, if you can com combine the storytelling aspect, because people connect with story, right? They don't want to just see data or statistics or 55 slides. If you can combine the story and the practical takeaways, then you're going to be in great shape. Okay. That's, that's great. So tell me about your third book, Friendship in the Age of Loneliness. Yeah. So this book was actually born several years ago. So it's very relevant, obviously, in the context of the pandemic and the last year of social isolation and lockdown. But I started writing this book in 2017. Um, the early draft and the early stories came out of the experience of losing one of my best friends. So one of my best friends uh, died at the age of 32 uh, to brain cancer. He was a really special man named Levi Felix. And he started this incredible community called Camp Grounded, uh, a tech-free summer camp for adults. He was one of the pioneering leaders, philosophers in the digital detox space, getting people to uh, realize how addicted we are to technology and the importance of detox and balance and building mindful relationships with our devices. So he started this thing called Camp Grounded, where we would take several hundred people into the Redwoods for four days, take away their cell phones, take away their computers, Apple watches, no technology. And people would just get to connect authentically for four days. You couldn't use your real name. You couldn't talk about wh what you do or where you work. You weren't allowed to talk about work, no drugs or alcohol, um, no talking about age, uh, no bios. And it was just really about play, authenticity, connection. And it really changed my life and the lives of hundreds of people. We ended up uh, doing nearly 15 or 16 camps uh, wow. several in California, North Carolina, 
it was a really, really incredible movement. So it wasn't just losing a friend. Losing a friend is really hard. It was losing someone that really changed my life and made me rethink the importance of community and friendship in my life. So that's where the, the book was born. And then as I started writing more and more, I realized, hey, this isn't just about you know, play and community, those are really important. We are living through an epidemic of loneliness. And the data is alarming. It was alarming before COVID. Nearly two thirds of Americans are lonely. 80% of Gen Z, those are folks that are right under under the age of 20 or so. And 70% of millennials experience loneliness. I mean, you know, it's gone up, you know, mental illness, everything else is massively exacerbated during this time. Keep going, please. I I just, I just read a, a, a study that was that was published in the New York Times that was saying nearly one in two young people ages 18 to 24 are experiencing what would be considered a mental health clinical, quote unquote, clinical disorder uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and this has you know, been documented with, with skyrocketing rates of teen anxiety and depression, even suicide, actually. It's real stuff. It's real alarming. Um, so I, I believe that, you know, there's many things that come into play here of, of how we can approach the issue of loneliness and social isolation. But one that doesn't get talked about as much, I think, is friendship and deepening our relationships and remembering that, yes, technology is important and connects us and brings us together. But remembering how crucial it is to go deeper and really build meaningful, authentic relationships with folks so that we're using the technology as tools to create meaningful connection, not just kind of you know, heart something or, you know, give a thumbs up, but actually remembering, hey, these these fundamental, these relationships are going to lead to healthy and happy lives. Actually, the science shows that the people who live lo- longer and have the healthiest lives, it's because of the, they have healthy relationships. And, and the challenge for younger people, millennials specifically, is that social media is the foundation and the infrastructure, shall we say, of the vast majority of their friendships. And that's how they connect. If I connected through a phone, the phone wasn't that necessary, that that infrastructure in the same way that social media is. So how do you deepen friendships? How do millennials deepen friendships in the absence of, you know, in the world that they live in today? Is it leverage social media fully or try to avoid social media? What's what's the answer? I believe it's a balance. I think, you know, that one of the things that surprised me in my research, first of all, I mean, the amount of time that young people are spending on social media is alarming and astronomical. So that has to be part of the conversation. People are spending 50 minutes a day on Instagram, 50 minutes a day on Facebook. Um, you know, TikTok is being used by young people, really young people, teenagers at alarming, just too much. Three, <laughs> four, need to, five hours a day. Yes. Three, four, five hours a day. Uh, the, you know, Pew Research Center said that I think 18 to 29 year olds use the internet almost constantly, <laughs> you know, which is frightening, <laughs> you know, not just, oh, a lot, a couple hours a day, almost constantly, like the whole day. And attention so is, the, is the answer, are, are use the hard. internet positively or avoid it? I What's think the- it's a balance. I don't think it's practical to say to anyone who is part of that, that lives in an urban environment as part of society that they should avoid the internet or avoid social media entirely. I think that that's, a, that's actually not fair to a young person to say they're going to miss out on stuff. They probably aren't going to do great in school. Um, that's, that's not okay, but it needs to be a balance. So there's, there's a couple sides to the coin. We need to be able to say, Hey, we need to, Hey, the tech companies need to be able to say, kick people off the platform or not get them addicted. Right. And which they're doing and they're building technology that's addictive. 
but also we need to kind of say, hey, remember the power of the in-person, remember the power of going offline, even using the apps or the connection. You know, Meetup's a great example of this, a tool that says, hey, we're connecting online, now go do something with these people, right? Now have a meetup. Of course, we couldn't do that a lot this this year with in-person, but even having the virtual connections and facilitating those in-person relationships, encouraging people to go deeper, to find connection, to find common bonds, to work on projects together, to learn together, that's the sweet spot there. I came across a lot of people in my research that said, actually, for some of, for some folks, technology is really important to building those connections. I profile a woman in my book who... Um, had chronic Lyme disease. And she was able to find this connection of support from an Instagram hashtag that led her to Facebook support groups and Instagram support groups all around finding, you know, solutions to her sickness and illness that she couldn't find from her doctor. And now all these people have allowed her to, she has built a, a healthy, happy life because of the connections on social media and technology. So it's not a simple thing to say, you know, no technology, no social media. And then on the flip side, if people are just on their phone or playing video games and not actually building social relationships, that's not healthy either. Listening to you, it, it, it makes me think that social media, where the primary outcome is a comparison of yourself to others, is incredibly dangerous. Social media that facilitates real connections. So for example, I don't know if you've used House Party, but my daughter who's yes. uh, 13 uses house party. A lot of, you know, tweens will use house party. And that's really just a forum, almost like a zoom, shall we say, where people are just kind of talking to each other, jumping in and out and having conversations just like the would at a cocktail party. Yes. And, and that's actually quite wonderful. Um, it's, it's where there's this, this, this comparison that it gets a lot more dangerous because it results in jealousy and results, results in fearings of inferiority and anxiety, uh, et cetera, that becomes more problematic at meetup. We, we always say we use technology to get people off of technology. Yes, that's actually what the what the science shows too. There's research that was done by this by J uh, John Cassioppo, who is one of the leading kind of pioneers and scholars on loneliness. Basically, that if social media and technology is used as the way station to find directions to get offline. A great example is Camp Grounded. A lot of people found out about Camp Grounded, which is a digital detox on Facebook or and Instagram, which is the most ironic thing. And there's the ones that might need it the most. <laughs> exactly. Where are they? <laughs> They're spending tons and tons of time scrolling on social media, but the thing helps them go offline, meet other, these people, have a transformational experience. Then technology is being used. It actually is being shown to, to have a positive impact on people's lives, positive impact on their emotions. If it's the end point, right? Not the way station, not the place where you find directions, but just the place where you're in a hamster wheel that goes on forever, the endless scroll, then it has a very adverse effect on people's mental health. It's a great differentiation, whether it's an end in itself or more of a means to an end. I heard that you mentioned Meetup in the book and uh, can't wait to can't wait to read it. And, and thank you for doing it. Have you participated or you know people who have participated in uh, Meetup events as well? I, I love Meetup. I mean, I've been a follower for many uh, many years, I've gone to designers and geeks uh, meetups and gone to a bunch of my friends that have given talks there. And I'm I'm always a fan of tools that are allowing people a to initiate their ideas, to kind of share their create creativity, to say, hey, I'm going to start this, or I want to build connection around this, or I want to build community around this, and then to find other like minded folks and just to get out there. And I think Meetup is an incredible service that does that. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And um, thank you for, you know, helping to support it as well. We talked about 
speaking and how much speaking that you do. How many times do you think you have publicly spoken? I mean, formally, probably, you know, 500 to 1,000 times, maybe something like that. It's really quite amazing. <laughs> and you bring that same energy kind of every single time. And I suppose you feed off of your audience, you know, when you're speaking. Um, and you recently started something. Well, not so recently, actually, a few years ago, which I just want to spend a little time talking about because I just think it's it's so important in the world we live in today, which is the Women and BIPOC Speaking Initiative. Tell our listeners a little bit more about it. Tell, tell us about why you felt it was so important and some of the things that you do, because I think it's just a great example of you have this strong capability and experience, and you're able to just help so many people with it that, that truly are underprivileged or need help. How did that start? And, and walk us through that journey. As I started to build up my speaking business, which takes some time, you know, I started speaking probably uh, 2014, 2015, you get on the speaker circuit, you're going to these conferences, you're speaking at companies. And I started to realize, you know, hey, there's a good, good percentage of these folks look like me. (laughs) They're older versions of me. In other words, they're older white men, but they are generally white men. Uh, And this is not something new. Uh, This is not just, (laughs) this is not... um, this is common in not just public speaking, but in, you know, in venture capital, in, in tech and in, in kind of boards, it's a big issue. So I started to realize, you know, this is, this is a huge problem. And you go to, you know, panels where it's all men or all male panels or just one, one woman in a panel or one speaker, one, one, one female speaker in the entire conference, one, one speaker of color, if any speakers of colors, at the con- speakers of color at the conference, this is a huge Uh, problem. And I said, you know, look, I'm starting to build all these relationships with influential people. I'm doing all this speaking. Um, I'm in a position of privilege and immense privilege and immense power. And I've only been in the game a couple of years. There are people that have been doing this a lot more time. Maybe if I get them on board too, we can really do something about this. And there are a lot of been a lot of efforts to, to increase uh, representation, inclusion in the speaking industry, but it's still a big issue. So in 2017, I started um, a Facebook group called the Women Speaker Initiative that expanded to being uh, the Women, Black, Indigenous, and POC Speaker Initiative. And we would match up-and-coming speakers with mentors that had more experience, specifically kind of in their uh, specific area of focus, whether it was speaking about design or speaking about diversity inclusion, speaking about tech, speaking about entrepreneurship, um, AI, whatever kind of the sector was to get people more, just kind of hear from a more experienced speaker. And then we have built a Facebook group. And now that Facebook group has about 4,000 people in it and people share resources, they share speaking gigs, opportunities. What should I charge for this? Cause that's another big issue is pay equity. I started to realize that I was doing similar events with uh, female speakers and speakers of color that had about the same experience as I did. And they were getting paid less than me or $2,000 less or not getting paid at all when I was getting paid, right? This is also a huge issue in the speaking industry. It's also an issue, uh, you know, in business as a whole in terms of pay equity. So talking about it more and creating a platform and a community for people to connect on it is really important. I believe that anyone that's in, you know, a position of, of influence in their industry can do something. Right. It's it's not about, you know, you don't have to be the person to start the 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 initiative, but you had to be part of the conversation. Right. And I think if you're not paying it forward and if you're not, it's just such an opportunity to pay it forward, to talk about it more, and just to think like, hey, how did you get to where you are today? And who are you going to support to get there too? 
And is is the is the industry you work in inclusive? Is it fair? Is it equal? Is it you know? Is it truly inclusive? And likely, it's probably not. Highly likely <laughs> uh, in not. an equitable world. So, how are you going to make it more equitable, more just, more inclusive? And there are steps you can take at every level of what you're doing in terms of who you're featuring in your book, on your podcast, who you're who you're recommending for gigs. Right when a conference says, "Hey, other speakers," like, hmm, let me think about you know, who am I recommending? I might not just recommend my best friend. Let me think about, you know, who's not being represented at this company in the, at this conference. So I hope that the initiative is not about me, um, is more about people being like, you know, how can I translate that into my work, my industry, my business? What's so awesome about that is you took something, being a book writer, being a speaker, that is pretty solitary type things to do. And you created this community around it. When I was debating about whether or not to uh, become the CEO of Meetup, I went out and I visited a whole lot of Meetup groups and saw Meetup in action. And that convinced me I had to I had to become the CEO of Meetup and, I, and just why what we did was so important. We visited a group that was a bunch of um, PhD students who were all working on their dissertation together. Something that's something that was a very solitary activity and it's those solitary activities that could be the most lonely type activities, being an author, being a, a solo speaker, that where community is actually far, far more important than if you're uh, part of, of a group, which you do everything together. And, and the community that you created not only does incredible positivity and good around diversity, inclusion, et cetera, but, and you're building real community for people. One of the things I learned in my writing this book is just like the power of bringing people together at any scale, right? We're taught, we talk so much about kind of numbers and followers and growth and scale and all this stuff. What I were, what I realized and learned from this book is kind of the power of the meetup group you were talking about of 15 PhDs, right? A few people coming together to write their book together, you know, start having a dinner party, having a virtual dinner party during the pandemic, right? Getting people together on a house party. That's enough. It doesn't have to be huge, right? That's, you don't have to launch your own nonprofit. You don't you have you be don't. enormously influential to 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 people and truly change their lives. And getting together in person isn't easy because people naturally are reluctant to go out and it's easy to just watch that next show on Netflix. So I love that you said that. What strikes me in talking to you about all the different things that you do, whether it's you know, the quarter life breakthrough or this initiative or Camp Grounded, community is truly at the center every single stage that you have gone through. Did you have like a first experience in community at a young age that made you realize, wow, this thing is really important to me when you're on your track team and, and running and smiling the entire time? Was that it? Or did you lack community? How did it become yeah. so important to you? And I think that early on, I realized the power of belonging, right? That was one of the biggest things with the, the team. I was one of the slowest kids on the team. I rarely placed. I wasn't you know, breaking records, but we were a really good team. We were a state championship team. And I was included. I became the captain senior year, not because I was that good, because I was kind of smiley. I was a cheerleader. I was important to the team. And that made me feel like I belonged and I mattered. So I think I learned that at a, at a young age, the power of making people feel welcome. I also think that in my creative career, I realized community was essential. That, that experience at starting block where I met these believers 
that were like, you can do this. You can, you're allowed to leave a job that's not working for you. Even if you're almost 30, you're allowed to switch it up, to change careers, to change paths, to try something new. That is the only reason I'm here today doing what I'm doing. They created that container for me. I'm like, I got to give that back. I had that experience at Starting Block and I self-published my first book because of my community supporting me and helping me do a crowdfunding campaign, an Indiegogo campaign to raise money to do it. That's the only reason I'm you know, able to do the work that I'm doing today of writing books and speaking is because a few people believed in me and I had a community. Smiley, you are going to, you have already influenced millions of people, literally. And it's just, it's exciting to me to see the butterfly effect, shall we say, Yes. of what's going to happen as you hit your one third uh, life and your midlife. Hit, I think I'm, I'm 37. I think I've already hit my one third. 37, but... you probably have hit your, your one third life, probably, <laughs> although you never know with technology. Do you That's think you're going to have a midlife crisis or you don't think you're going to have one? Oh, I've had many. I mean, that's the other thing you learn at this. It's, you know, you have bumps, you have, you have curves. It's not, there's not one answer. And, you know, a lot of people will assume that everything, you know, once you start to be public, you know, getting published by a real publisher or speaking, you know, at a fortune 500 company that all the problems go away, you just have new problems and new challenges. And I, you know, I, I look forward to, I think one of the things I've learned in my my creative career is that those obstacles, those challenges shape the work. Yes. Each of those quote unquote crises or bumps are the growth opportunities that propel yes. you to become the person that you want to be and then help to influence others. And the absence of those bumps means the absence of the continued evolution and development of the smiley that we know and love. So now we are going to hit some rapid fire questions. I'm going to hit you with a question and then just a quick response answer. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. First job. Ice cream scooper, Ben and Jerry's. Okay. What favorite ice cream at Ben and Jerry's? Chunky Monkey. Okay, if you could access a time machine and go anywhere you wanted and any time place you wanted. Oh my God. When are you going and where are you going? I'll go to the 60s. Yeah. Put me in a, a Woodstock. <laughs> Woodstock in the 60s. <clears throat> Knowing your smile, I think I know the answer to this, but first thing you do when you get up in the morning. I go for a run. Fantastic. I actually try to do that four or five uh, days a week as well. I mean, I, I brush my teeth outside. too. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, first thing. Well, with that smile, you better. Yeah. Favorite quote. Don't worry about what the world needs. Find what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And that's from Howard Thurman, civil rights activist. That's okay. one of my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I could certainly understand why and why that you live that. Bucket list. You're doing a lot of things, but you must still do want to do more. Let's hear uh, it. What's on your bucket list? Well, my partner, Ali, she's taught me a lot of, of how to learn, how to, of learning to cook. So my bucket list would be becoming like a food critic and having my own food show on Netflix. That's my next, that's like my true bucket list. I want to okay. just learn how to cook all the things and become an incredible chef. I love food. So Netflix, you hear that? <laughs> He's ready. He's open yeah. to take, getting his own show. Get, get me on there. Get me on there tomorrow. Watch out world. Okay. The last question I tend to like to ask, what do you most want to be remembered by? That I made people feel a little bit happier, a little bit more excited to be alive. I have no doubt that with your name, what it is, <laughs> and even if you didn't have the name, with the perspective that you have, you've already done a lot of that and you're going to continue to do all of that. And uh, I know that just myself, I feel happier just talking to you. I was excited about today's podcast. You did not let me down. 
So thank you so much, Smiley. I really yeah, appreciate th- it. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for listening. Even though this is a podcast and you couldn't get to see Smiley, you probably felt the smile like actually coming through. Let me share a couple of my quick takeaways. Using tech as a way station, that tech should be a means to an end, but not an end in itself. Some of his advice about public speaking is something that I learned a ton from and I plan to use myself. And his notion of digital detox as a solution for loneliness certainly resonated. If you like today's episode, then absolutely subscribe, leave a review, love to hear it. And don't forget, keep connected because life is better together. One of the best ways to make new friends and build a strong community is to find people who share your interests. Whether you want to make new hiking buddies, join a book club, or network and grow a business, there are countless people on Meetup who are ready to connect. Start your own group on Meetup and save 50% on your first subscription payment. Go to meetupsavings.com to claim your discount.